here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks segment. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, would you like to get us started with the first query letter? Dear Carly, Cecilia, and Bianca, I am a huge fan of your podcast, and I can't thank you enough for doing this segment. Hearing advice on other queries has been incredibly insightful in my own work. I hope you'll take the time to consider my query. Thank you. 
My novel, Camp Anabana, is the first in what I hope to be a series of middle-grade mystery novels. At a brief but action-packed 60,000 words, the manuscript never overstays its welcome while delivering on its promise. Kids always say they don't want camp to end. For these kids, it doesn't. Samantha, Sam for short, never wanted to go to summer camp, but her mother insists that she needs to make friends. Upon arriving, Sam immediately begins to realize that things are not what they seem. Strange flashing lights in the night and a brief glimpse of a monster in the lake tip off Sam that this might be more than the average summer camp. Not only that, but she and her friends seem to be the only ones who realize that every day is the first day of camp. Trapped in a time loop with her new friends, Sam must find a way out of the tangle of mysteries before things go from bad to worse. Added part, Camp Anabana is about the fear of growing up. Sam's on the verge of high school and doesn't want to stop being a kid. With the days repeating, she finally gets her wish and can stay a kid forever. But at what cost? The longer she stays at camp, the more of her memory disappears. Now she has to choose whether she wants to remember her family or finally be free of the troubles of growing up. With its endearing humor and layered mystery, Camp Anabana is perfect for fans of Kwame Mabalia and Carlos Hernandez. While paying tribute to classics like Groundhog Day and Gravity Falls, Camp Anabana maintains its originality with a diverse cast of characters and overarching themes of inclusion. So far, the book has been read by both teachers and middle grade children to high praise. Now it has a small following that can't wait to see it in print soon. Your bio mentioned your interest in both diverse casts as well as character-driven stories, so I thought you would be perfect for this. My work has appeared in the Marcus Literary Magazine as well as Texas Mile Split where some of my articles have gone on to become mandatory reading in collegiate cross-country programs. When I'm not reading anything written by Stephen King or Philip Pullman, I can be found teaching my cat to fist bump. I'm 18, live in Texas with pigs, dogs, and cats, all named after book characters, as well as my crazy family, all named normal names. I'm looking for representation, ready for an adventure. Thank you for your consideration, Anderson Wood. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. All right, Cece, would you like to dive into your thoughts on the query letter? Yes. So I really liked this. When I first read this, I was like, it's like Neverland meets Groundhog Day, I guess. And I really, really liked the premise. It's such a cool premise. So very, very good job, author, coming up with this very original, really cool premise, like a twist on an original premise, I guess. In terms of the query letter, it's almost 500 words. So it's on the long side. I would recommend cutting it down a little bit. A paragraph that I think can basically go, with the exception of the comps, is paragraph five. I think paragraph five can can go. You can keep the comps if you're keen on that and move them up to the first paragraph following the book hook cook formula that Carly often talks about and that I really, really enjoy. Nothing in that really is relevant, right? I think it's really cool that you've shared your book with teachers and middle grade children. And I think it's really cool that you've gotten high praise, but this is more one of those things where you'll talk about with your agent when you have the call. Don't take up real estate in the query letter with that. And yeah, I don't, I mean, I should make this clear, I guess. I don't represent middle grade novels. I'm not well versed in them. Having once upon a time been the girl who would read this as a child, I, I think it sounds really awesome. I think it sounds really cool. So thank you for sharing. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Carly, what did you think? I also don't represent much middle grade. It's kind of the one category that I don't represent. The reason being it's so specific and has its kind of very own market specifications that just require just being really sensitive to that. So I actually represent picture books and YA and I kind of skip over middle grade. So again, this is just me, you know, being a, a general 
federal agent critiquing this. I do feel like this possibly is long, possibly for middle grade. I think the expectations is a bit more around like 50, 55. 60 is kind of the start of YA kind of length. So I think I think this might be on the long side, but again, not my main category of expertise. I really like the first line of the kind of meat of this, which says kids always say they don't want camp to end. For these kids, it doesn't. That's a great first line. That's a great tagline, hook, everything. That That's really, really great. And then from there on, I think we're just layered with a lot of things that possibly don't need to be there. You know, I think with the voiciness that we're attempting with the Samantha, Sam for short thing, like, do we need that? Probably not. But all of it just seems a little bit wordy. Like it's it's very interesting. I think it's just overwritten a little bit. And I think CC touched on this as well, but the the paragraph at its heart, Camp Anabana is about the fear of growing up. That whole paragraph just needs to be one line, right? We're just, we're just kind of over explaining and re-explaining things in different ways that we already know. As I've talked about many times uh, on the podcast and CC and I with our webinar talking about the word humor and how iffy I am about the word humor, I just feel like it is presumptuous to call yourself funny personally. And I think it's better to wow us and uh, surprise us with your humor as opposed to telling us that you are funny. But other than that, I think that paragraph is really great uh, with the comp, letting us know about the diverse cast of characters and, and themes of inclusion. That's great. But you also repeat that. So in the next paragraph, you say your bio mentions your interest in both diverse casts as well as characters in different stories. So I just think we're repeating ourselves and saying the same thing in many ways. So I think you just kind of need to have a red pen or a highlighter out. And just every time you come to something that you've already said, just strike it out. And then you'll see what the bones of this query is. And then you can kind of rewrite it in a way that really hits on all of that. I think that's amazing that you're 18 and so market savvy. And I mean, I was, I was really impressed with the level of professionalism. I know personally at 18, I don't think I would have had this much polish. So I think that's really, really wonderful and shows a lot of promise to, um, you know, a career in this business. And I, I think that's really great. So well done. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. All right, Cece, let's dive into those opening pages. What are your thoughts? All right. So for the listener, we have an action prologue here. So it starts with Sam. It doesn't, by the way, it doesn't say action prologue. It says chapter one, but this is 100% an action prologue. It starts with Sam and this person called Bones and Sam's friends are behind her. And Sam is screaming, saying, it was you all along. I knew it. And Bones is pleading, right? Like, please don't, please don't, please don't. We don't quite know what the don't is. And she's saying, I'm not backing down after everything you did to us. And a monster shows up from the water behind them. So obviously, this is meant to incite curiosity. It's meant to have the reader read this and go, oh my gosh, there's going to be a scene where Sam and Bones and their friends are confronting this person, Bones, and the monster's going to show up and I'm going to be scared. For those of you who, you know, maybe might be listening to this and thinking to themselves, like, what is an action prologue? An action prologue is essentially a story that starts off with something exciting happening immediately, right at the beginning. In this case, again, confrontation, monster showing up. And, and then usually we go back in time to, you know, 42 days earlier. And then we know, the reader knows that this the scene is going to happen, but we don't quite have the context to fully understand it. So we're curious and we keep on reading. So I don't know if this is the genre. And again, I don't represent middle grade. So take my advice with a grain of salt, but I personally don't think we should start with an action prologue. I wasn't scared. I wasn't invested because I don't know enough about Sam's personality or Bone's personality or the friend's personalities. Again, I remember reading middle grade stories. I've always been such a voracious reader and I cared about what I still care about, I guess, which is like the the character's inner life. I cared about 
of the character's life situation. Because as kids, you have no control. You don't get to pick your parents. You don't get to pick where you live. You don't get to pick what school you go to. You don't get to pick anything. And I cared about, you know, what was happening in their lives. And I wanted to see them overcome an obstacle through their very unique point of view. So in order to do that, though, you have to establish character. And in this scene, you're establishing action. So personally, I would not start with the action prologue. But again, take my advice with a grain of salt. And then we go back in time to 42 repetitions earlier, which is a cute way of saying, you know, 42 days earlier, since every day they're, they're stuck in a time loop. That's actually really cute. And Sam is in the car with her mom, and they're driving to camp. A few things about that chapter. So there's a part where she says, Sam found herself struggling to match her mother's enthusiasm. Instead, dreading their arrival, she could manage car sickness, but kids her age, no thanks. I think she wouldn't think kids her age. That's not how kids think. You just think kids, you know? Like when I was 12 and I didn't want to go to camp, I wouldn't think, I don't want to hang out with kids my age. I would think I don't want to hang out with other kids. Like, Kids are a little bit of narcissists in the best way possible because they're stuck in their own world. Their reality is everything. They don't do the thing that adults do, which is to say, well, this is a phase or that's an age group. Like it's more about kids, you know? So I don't think she would say that. I don't think that sounded natural. And then another thing is that, you know, when we get to the to the next page, there's a paragraph um, that starts with the, the last part bothered Sam the most. If high school was the peak of life, life couldn't be that special. She never liked high school. Um, and then, you know, the paragraph goes on to tell us that, you know, she has good grades, but she's never been challenged, that she just goes through the motions. Middle school was like that. Lower school was like that. And with her current track record, she was convinced that high school, which she's going to start, you know, after summer camp, would be more of the same, just nothing special. And uh, that bothered me. And here's why. What does she like? I totally get her being like stuck in this bored, listless, like, I don't like anything. I don't like the kids here. I don't like my school. I don't like my teachers. That's all fine. But she has to like something. I get not liking other kids. I get not wanting to go to camp. I totally get all these things. I was not an outdoorsy kid at all. I wanted to stay in and read all day. But what what would be her dream summer then? Because that says a lot about a person. Does she want to read books all day, getting lost in the world with witches and dragons? Would she want to travel to, I don't know, Antarctica? Because her passion is to see every corner of the globe. Kids live in the future. Because again, they don't control their present. They can't wait for what's next. And they keep thinking of alternative realities to their lives. They compare, right? Like, so I think it's very believable that she is not into camp and very believable that she's like not matching her mom's enthusiasm. But I think she would be thinking, you know, of what she would be wanting to do instead. And that will inform us about her personality. You know, if I know what she loves, then I know her. If you know someone's passions, you know someone's and someone's problems, someone's problems and passions, then you know someone's life. So that's my second note. And then I guess you know, by the time I reached the next page, I was thinking to myself, so it's all Sam and her mom talking in the car, explaining why she's going to camp, explaining that she's going to adapt, explaining that high school's yet to come. So by then I was thinking to myself, okay, I know what the, what the big picture note is that I have to give the author. These first five pages, they're being used to explain. It's all explanation. They're not being used to, to entertain. Authors, whether you like it or not, if you want a career in this, in traditional publishing to make money, you're an entertainer. That is your job. I don't want to be one. That's too bad because you are. This first scene is being used to tell us what Sam's situation is. Don't do that. Do that, but don't use the first scene for that reason. Give Sam a goal, a very, very small goal, and put her in a situation where there's an obstacle and an imbalance. It can be the smallest thing in the world. She could have a plan to hide her mom's car keys so that they don't go to camp. It could be 
anything. It could be anything. It could be the smallest thing in the world, but do that. And then have me see how she, how she handles herself in a situation where she has agency. And, and yet there's an obstacle with someone with more power that's helped by her mom or maybe someone camp. I don't know, but don't start with the scene where it's all like in a car dialogue explaining about going to camp because I already know she's going to camp. I'm going to read that in the back of the, of the book. Right. So, okay. Those are my notes. Yeah. And it, you know, you've got to guard so much against that info dumping because we as writers go, Oh, my reader needs to know this and they need to know this. And then it's like, how am I going to give them all this context and information? And we think that the reader doesn't get that it's an info dump but they totally, totally do. So Carly, what was your take on those pages? I don't have too much to add to Cece's critique. I just kind of want to talk a little bit about the prologue and from, or it's not a prologue written, but it is a prologue about the prologue and, and possibly why it doesn't work. So the reason that, one of the reasons <laughs> uh, publishing professionals don't love prologues is that we are not invested in the characters yet. So you are asking us to suspend not only disbelief for the plot and the situation, but also the emotional investment in the characters themselves, which is very hard. You're just setting yourself up for kind of a bit of a, a challenge that you probably didn't know that you were setting yourself up for. And in an author's mind, I assume that they are thinking, I'm starting with something dramatic. You know, I'm going to hook them with this super dramatic plot. But what ends up happening is you end up alienating the reader before you've even begun because of that distance that you've created between the actual plot and the emotions of what's happening behind the plot. Because one of the reasons fiction works is that we you are building up character development while you are building up plot. And what you are doing with an action prologue is that you're actually reversing that to challenge yourself and challenge the reader in a way that just is unnecessary. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Uh, something that I would just like to point out is that two of the three submissions today were about 10 pages long as opposed to five pages long. One, try to make it five pages, that very sneaky five pages, but single spacing. And the other one just was like, forget it. I'm just giving you 10 pages, double spaced. So when you are submitting to agents, please be aware that industry standard means if an agent asks for five pages or if they ask for 10 pages, they mean double space, 12 point font. And as CC constantly is saying, readability is really important. Accessibility of the words on the page are super important. When you condense information into single line spacing, it becomes this wall of words and there's kind of a psychological block for the reader to access it. So whenever you look up how many pages an agent is asking for. If they say five pages, stick to five pages. If it's 10 pages, stick to that and always make it double spaced. Okay, Cece, let's move on to our next query letter. Absolutely. And to keep it fair, we only read five pages. We're not going to read more if you sneak in more, so it won't work. All right, let's do this. Dear Cecilia Lira, I am seeking representation for my novel, Summer Ends, a work of literary fiction, 75,000 words. The novel tells the intimate story of a marriage in crisis and is set in the tradition of Claire Massoud's The Emperor's Children and Siri Hustavit's The Sorrows of an American in New York in the days leading up to the September 11 attacks. Abigail Page works near the top of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Though she and her husband Jacob have overcome a major trauma together, their four-year-old son's battle against a rare form of cancer and his ultimate ultimate survival, their marriage has entered a stagnant phase. And it is at this point in early September 2001 that Abigail's younger sister comes to New York to talk through what she calls an existential crisis. 
For Abigail, the visit resurfaces a flood of memories from her childhood in North Carolina, including from the worst day of her life. But the visit also coincides with the discovery that Jacob has been having an affair. Now, Abigail and Jacob must both take a hard look at their marriage and their own individual struggles and must weigh how much they want to work to save the life they shared. But it is uncertain whether they will have the time to reconcile before the events of history collide with their lives. As for my background, I'm an American living in Spain. Here, for the purposes of the podcast, I'm removing some identifying information I would otherwise include. Summer Ends is my first book, and I am about 30,000 words into my next project. One additional item I want to note is that Summer Ends was briefly represented in 2020 by agency in the UK, and it was submitted to a small number of British publishers. Though the agent in question and I have since parted ways, I learned a number of positive lessons from that experience that I would be happy to discuss at the appropriate time. Finally, allow me to say how much I have enjoyed listening to your Books with Hooks segment on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. For me, your conversations with Bianca Murray and Carly Waters have been an exceptional tool for learning more about the industry and what it takes to capture a reader's attention. As you say, tension. Please find below the first five pages of my novel. Thank you for considering my work, and I will look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, John. Right. So before we get your thoughts, Carly, on the query letter, what I'm interested to know is the part where, you know, they've included that it went out on submission with another agent, etc. Is this something that you as agents want to know in that query letter? Is it better for a writer to be upfront about it in the query letter? Or what is your take on that? That was actually one of my notes on this query letter. I thought they handled it exceptionally well. And I do want to know that at this stage. And I thought that was handled very graciously and honestly, and pretty much a template for how everybody should do it, to be honest with you, because it affects the marketability of a project knowing these facts. One of the things I find really interesting about this and spark some questions in my mind is this, this sounds like an extremely American book. And the fact that they queried a UK agent and it went out on submission in the UK is very curious to me because to me, the target audience is the US. So I'm not put off by this. I'm thinking maybe we just didn't tap this person for whatever reason, right? Like didn't fully tap into the intended market for the book. So this isn't a problem for me. And I think a lot of writers who have to go back into the querying trenches, I'm using air quotes here, uh, the querying trenches know that this can be a real stumbling block. How do you say it? When do you say it? How much information do you give in a query letter? But it does affect my perception. You don't have to name the agent if you don't want to. You don't have to say why you parted ways. Sometimes writers will say, you know, we mutually um, part ways. There's, you know, you could, there's many ways that you can word it depending on how you want to handle it, but not bad mouthing the person, obviously, even if, it, even if you parted on negative ways in this query stage is obviously very important. And I actually, and I've said this before to authors who have been represented before, I actually love representing authors that have been represented before. And I'll tell you why. They know what they want in an agent and they know what they don't want in an agent. So it's not a negative to me that you've been represented before. A a writing career is a very long thing. We're going to go through lots of ups and downs together. And just like my opinions about marriage, like even if you have a successful marriage that is five years long, 10 years long, a successful marriage doesn't mean a marriage that, you know, lasts for infinity years, right? Like you can have a very successful period of time together that works really well until it doesn't, right? And then then you part ways and you move on. So much the same like agenting in the sense that you can work really well together for a certain amount of time until it doesn't work. And that's fine. So I don't think negatively on anybody 
somebody that has to leave their agent for any reason. I know it's a very vulnerable time in a writer's career because they have to put themselves back out on the market. And I just want to add there that something that I found really fascinating in terms of interviewing authors for the guest segment is how many authors have changed agents, some of them more than once, you know, before they found the right fit. And, you know, for someone like me, I'm an extremely, extremely loyal person. And so for me to change agents was like anxiety inducing because I felt so much guilt about it. And, you know, you become friends with your agent. It becomes a personal relationship. And so it feels like a breakup. But something that so many of these authors have said, and it really like put it into context for me, is how your writing is your business. It's your livelihood. It's your career. And, you know, you have to always do what's best for your business. So so that's something that I found quite fascinating because I was under the impression that most writers find their agent or with them for all eternity, singing Kumbaya and braiding each other's hair. <laughs> okay, so Carly, do you want to go into the actual query letter? Yeah, I could talk about that topic forever. So maybe we need to <laughs> set aside some specific time for that because I, I totally, totally agree. Okay, the query letter itself. So I think this is a very interesting hook around the, in New York, in the days leading up to the September 11 attack. I think this is a very interesting hook. I've actually talked to editors about this before because it's, you don't see a lot of books that take place during this time. And the general feedback that I have got from editors is that it still feels very close. And New York publishing is publishing, right? And so when you're talking about the attack, the September 11 attacks, there are agents and editors who were there. They saw it. You know, they, I I have an agent friend of mine who has told me the story of, you know, when it happened. And she said, you know, she's at her desk, you know, she she hears what's going on. She looks out the window and her husband works in financial district. You know, like I've heard these firsthand stories, like many people listening to this podcast remember these firsthand stories. So it is a very sensitive time in people's lives for for a very important reason. And so I think the, one of the reasons we're still not seeing a lot of books on this topic is that it feels really close, right? And so we just need to be really sensitive to that. And the book has to be so much bigger than the moment in order to really stand out with a hook like this. So I'm curious, you know, as I said, I, I don't see a lot of books tackling this well. So I think this is a really great hook. My only kind of question around this query letter is what is happening in the present? Because a lot of this is we're leading up to the attacks 9-11, right? And so I'm really not clear on what the present plot itself is. It says at the end of um, the second paragraph, but it is uncertain whether they will have time to reconcile before the events of history collide with their lives, which is interesting. But again, I just, I'm, I'm worried and I'm concerned that not enough is happening in the present because even if there is, this query letter isn't telling me that. So how do I know as an agent what's coming next? I don't, right? So that's kind of the main, the main issue for me. I'm just worried we're living in the past here a little bit too much and we're not like in that week. But as I said, you know, I think everything else is handled really, really well in this. And I'm very curious about the pages to continue. Cece, what do you think? It's definitely a very well-written query letter. The author put a lot of work into this and a lot of care. Having read the pages, my main note for the query letter is you're not saying it's dual POV. From the query letter, I'm assuming it's all Abigail's point of view. And I've read the pages, so I know it's not. So I think the main thing that you need to edit in this query letter from a technical perspective is to include that we get Abigail's and Jacob's perspective. This would be especially important if you're querying me. And this is a personal preference of mine, but I'm assuming you're a guy. If you're writing from a woman's perspective, 
on only a woman's perspective, I'm thinking to myself, why? Doesn't mean I won't read your pages, I will. But I'm already going into this going, why? It's the story of a marriage. Why aren't you giving me both? That's what I thought when I read the query letter. And then I got to the pages and I was like, oh, you are giving me both. So, you know, maybe you should have told me about that on, on the query letter. I would have wanted to know. To me, it makes up for a better story. So yeah, that would be truly my only technical note on the query letter. I agree with everything, everything Carly and Bianca said before, particularly about the whole living in the past vibe. It is literary fiction and I am willing to read the pages to say, well, you know, maybe there's conflict and maybe, you know, you, you always give it a chance. You always go and you read the pages because it's all about the writing. But if there is more conflict in the present, and I'm hoping there is, I would also recommend adding a line about it. And to clarify, the discovery of the affair, while very, very raw and personal, isn't really a conflict in the present day, right? Like you're still discovering more stuff in the past. Like it's her childhood in North Carolina, that trauma, the affair already happened, like unearthing secrets can't can't propel a story forward that's just not how it's just not how it works thanks Cece okay Carly let's dive into those opening pages what were your thoughts on them I thought this was a really extraordinary setup I am a huge 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 fan of time stamps and time stamps are the things where it's like date location time just like stamped at the top of the page I love that so this says Friday comma September 7th right so we we already know based on the query that we are in the week before 9-11 and this is just phenomenally done right and so the next kind of opening paragraph tells us that the character is sitting in her office and she sees a plane going by. And I was just blown away by this because we know we are the week before September 11. And this is something so sophisticated is that the reader knows what's going to happen, but the character doesn't. Right. And so it immediately, like my stomach was like clenched because even though it's not September 11, it's September 7, we still know what's going to happen. And I just had this like, you know, huge emotional reaction to this opening paragraph, which I thought was just so well done. Like you have tension built into this based on reader expectations and the fact that the reader knows more than the character. So I thought this was super, super well done. Another one of my favorite things in general is dialogue. And I thought the dialogue was done really, really, really well. It's a phone argument between a husband and wife. And it's really, really tempting for writers to want to fully narrate both sides of a phone conversation. Whereas this is just, we're in her point of view, but we're getting his words. So we're like on her side kind of, but we're, we're, it's, it's so well done that we know their secrets, but we're not spelling out the secrets. We're alluding to secrets in a way that's very like punchy with dialogue, like flying back and forth. Right. So I thought that was super well done. And then we start to get into what I thought was coming, which is the backslide in terms of going back. And I was hoping we weren't going to be sliding back this soon. You know, we're on page three, I think. um, And we're already going back to when the couple met. And then, you know, the next section, we're going back to North Carolina. Like we're doing these backslides in terms of, you know, going back into the past frequently. And we're jumping around a lot. And so I was really hoping we were going to spend a lot more time in the present before we jump back. It doesn't mean I'm not interested. I'm not going to keep reading. But my initial enthusiasm and gut feeling for this is has slid a little bit. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what are your thoughts? The writing here is really strong. Since we're offering feedback, here are my notes. Note one, right on the first page, 
Jude, their son, was four, and he went to a daycare near their home on the Upper West Side. I'm against these explanations, right? Like this was a pause in dialogue when someone mentioned Jude's name. One way to make this better and stronger, I think, is to add emotion to the statement. So for example, since we're inside Abigail's head, she could be dreading the phone call to the daycare with their super strict rules. And then she could think to herself, why does a four-year-old, why do four-year-olds in general need strict schedule rules? And then we would find out that Jude is their son. We would find out that he's four through emotion instead of like the pausing to offer context because I never like that. I agree the dialogue is very, very strong, but the first chapter reads like a script, a movie script. There's no inner life, none. It could literally be a, a script for a TV show or movie. So if that's intentional, that's totally fine. Personally, I gravitate towards things that have a little bit more of inner life sprinkled in. Two, in chapter two, I don't think Jacob knows what deja vu means. Jacob's at the airport picking up his his sister-in-law and he keeps reliving memories. Memories surface unbidden in, in the forefront of his mind. And he, he, there's a really great line where he says he did not like the phrase uh, deja vu because he believed it combined both pretension and tackiness, two vices he enjoyed looking down on, but there was no better description of these experiences. Great, great writing. But that's not what, what deja vu means. Deja vu is when you're living a moment and you get a feeling that you've already lived it. So if I am talking to you guys on the podcast here and I got a feeling of having already done this, not a good example because we do this every week, but um, Jacob is describing just memories that are coming to him. So I would, unless it's intentional that he doesn't know what deja vu means, I would strike that. And then my final note is the same as Carly's note, which is we keep going back. We keep slipping back in time and the past is doing all the work. I'm almost wondering whether this novel needs to be in the days leading up to 9-11. Maybe this is just a novel that takes place in the past. I don't know. And if this is intentional, that's totally fine the author should keep it but I personally think that the past can't do the heavy lifting something I'd like to point out is to pay attention to things on a sentence level especially in your opening line so I just want to read the opening line here sunlight gleamed like the chime of a bell on a plane above the harbor I had to read that line five times because it sounded like the simile was saying a bell chiming on a plane as opposed to sunlight gleaming on a plane. And that like, that's the very first line. And I read it and reread it. And, and then I figured out, you know, what the author was trying to say. So pay close attention to your writing on a line level. So instead of sunlight gleamed like the chime of a bell on a plane above the harbor, you would begin with above the harbor, sunlight gleamed on a plane like the chime of a bell. So that there's no misunderstandings there as to what the, the simile is. All right, let's move on to our third query letter. I will read that for us. Dear Cece, I'm currently seeking representation for my debut novel, Saltwater Cottage. Sitting right at 90,000 words, this young adult fiction book is perfect for readers who enjoy a love story with a built-in mystery like Netflix's Outer Banks. Though written as a YA novel, women who enjoy books like Practical Magic or The Book Charmer would love to curl up with this one as well. The book opens in 1989 with social pariah and rumored witch Teddy Meredith reporting the sudden disappearance of her younger sister Robbie. She knows that nobody in her sleepy seaside hometown of Pippin's Point will take her seriously, but she has to try. The story then shifts to present day where the Wells sisters, still reeling from their parents' divorce, must spend the summer with their dad in Pippin's Point when their mother ditches them to tour Italy with her new younger boyfriend. While 
gloomy Emerson plans to stay miserable and Sunny Brighton hopes to work on her tan, both of their expectations are dashed when town locals inform them that their dad's beach house is haunted by a beautiful young girl that vanished decades ago. Suddenly, the sisters strangely find themselves convincing a now grown-up Teddy Meredith to help them solve the murder of the sister she had already given up on. While the sisters get closer to finding the truth about what happened in 1989, Emerson confronts her own past pains, Brighton grapples with her positive facade, and Teddy struggles to trust again. Saltwater Cottage explores the trials teen girls face today, awkward family dynamics, and learning how to heal. As each page turns, readers will wish they too could score an invite to Pippin's Point, a hidden treasure on the Gulf of Mexico filled with colorful residents, while also peeling back the layers of the story's relatable female protagonists. My name is Melinda Wood. I live in Houston, Texas with my husband, Justin, our three children, and Cocker Spaniel Macy. I graduated from Baylor University with a degree in journalism and then taught high school yearbook classes before choosing to stay home with our kids when our middle son was born with unexpected health challenges. As a family, we frequent the library, the beach, and Mexican restaurants. The first story I ever wrote was about a girl building a boat with her dad when I was six years old, and I've been writing ever since. I hope that Saltwater Cottage will be the first of many novels I get to share. Thank you for your consideration. I look forward to the possibilities ahead. Thank you, Melinda Wood. Okay, Carly, let us know what you think of that query letter. There is a lot happening in here. (laughs) I will say that. I think there's a length issue here. 90,000 words for YA is pretty long. It's not one of my primary categories that I represent, but I do represent it. And it really shouldn't go over 78,000, I don't think. I think that would probably be my goal for this. So that's cutting like 12,000 words, right? So that's a lot. And the other thing is it's kind of pitching itself as crossover. And I hesitate when authors do this because it has to be pitched, sold, marketed into one single category. They're just so different. The adult market and the YA market are so incredibly different. Crossover books, of course, exist. We all know that they exist. But these are completely different categories. For example, YA does a lot of selling into libraries. You know, that's a huge, huge market for YA, whereas adults a lot more trade market oriented. So these are just completely different categories that we can't, you know, talk about in the same sentence that easily without talking about market constraints and everything like that. And as well as agents who don't represent both and and things like that. So that's something I just want to make sure everybody's really clear on. Books that do cross over are extraordinary and rare. I'm lucky to represent one. JL Richardson's Gutter Child is one that's been able to cross over, but it was actually positioned as adult and then was kind of brought on in terms of enthusiasm by teachers and things like that, bringing it into schools for you know teaching a, a 12U audience. So, you know, there are totally books that do that. We just can't pitch them like that. And we don't, we just can't kind of swing back and forth those two categories that easily. And now getting to the meat of the pitch. Ultimately, I'm confused. I'm going to be honest with you. You know, we're starting in 1989 um, and then we're moving to present day and we have like two separate families. I, re- I really thought this was more of a synopsis than a pitch. I also thought that like Teddy Meredith was a Wells sister because Teddy and Meredith both seem like first names or first and middle. I was just really confused, to be honest with you. And I also felt like this was a very passive type of pitch. So I would really just, I think the most interesting part here is is this middle part. So while Gloomy Emerson plans to stay miserable and, su- and Sunny Brighton hopes to work on her tan, both of their expectations are dashed when town locals inform them that their dad's beach has been haunted by a beautiful young girl that vanished decades ago. To me, that's the book, right? 
right? And then suddenly the sisters strangely find themselves convincing a now grown-up Teddy Meredith to help them solve the murder of the sister she'd already given up on. To me, this the, that is the book. So I would just kind of strip away everything else, <laughs> focus on that. And then if there's anything confusing left, just, you know, kind of work to kind of encourage that to shine. So that's kind of my main take on this. I think the author bio paragraph is great. You could probably cut the first story ever I wrote, you know, about a girl building a boat with her dad, probably cut that just for length's sake, because it's a teensy bit long. But my main question after reading this query is, who is this book for? Because I'm kind of thinking now it's more of a coming of age story, considering we also have a main character, a grown up Teddy Meredith. So I, I have a lot of questions. I think it's interesting. I, as I said, that that section that I picked out, I think has a lot of potential, but I have some questions. Awesome, Carly. Thanks. Cece, what were your thoughts? Do you also have questions? I had questions, especially about like, like I had all the questions Carly mentioned. And then I also was wondering how old these people were. So, you know, social pariah and rumored witch Teddy Meredith, that made me, that sounded adult to me. I, I It's just my own personal bias, but like, I was like, is she 16? Is she 20? Like how, how old is this person? Same with the Wells sisters. And by the way, yes, it was very confusing to first introduce them as Wells sisters. And then to, you know, while gloomy Emerson and the sunny Brighton, sunny Brighton could be a place. Like, don't do this to me. I, we read a lot of queries. I get easily confused. So something to think about. I also felt that, and this is echoing Carly's, Carly's comment, but the struggles seem to be very internal and good job nailing the internal struggles. And there should be internal struggles that your characters are facing, but there should also be external struggles um, in their own lives and the Wells sisters own lives, not just solve the mystery for Teddy's sake. I guess I'm wondering like what's going to be the POV situation. So I would also add that like, am I going to be in three inside three heads? Like, like Emerson, Brighton and Teddy, or is it just going to be like, I don't, I don't know. So I guess I would want to know these things. Yeah. Wonderful. Thanks Cece. Okay. Carly, what were your thoughts on the pages? So for everybody listening, we are starting with chapter one, Teddy in 1989, like the query letter suggested. So we are starting in the uh, police department, which I think is a really great start. However, I I think we should actually start by telling us we're in the police department because the opening section is Teddy Mara's coffee cup sat untouched on the table beside her. That could be anywhere, right? I don't I don't know where I am at that point. So strike through. The seconds ticked away on the clock on the opposite wall. Strike through. We don't know where we are. She shifted in her seat, her legs sticking to the olive green leather in the waiting room of the Pippin Point Police Department. Great. <laughs> That's where we're actually figuring out where we are. Then you could say, you know, the seconds ticked away on the clock opposite to her because we know where we are. So that's the way that I would reframe this. We ne- Next, we start with some re- weather reports. We got to strike through all the weather reports. And then what starts to happen is we start to learn about magic. And this, to me, I was very confused about because I thought that this was more of a imagining of, of magic because in the queer letter, it says rumored witch. And if you're a rumored witch, then you're not actually a witch to my knowledge, right? <laughs> but then we start figuring out, oh, there is some magic here because she says she knew Robbie must be there. She also also knew Robbie was dead and she's convincing the police department here that she's dead through facts that we assume to be true because we are in her POV essentially right so I'm pretty confused about the magic I I'm going to give another plug to one of my clients books uh Glendy Vanderas where the forest meets the stars also starts with a little bit of like is it magic is it not and it's such a fine line to walk 
because a lot of reviewers on Goodreads were like, well, this is fantasy. Like there was a lot of assumptions that started to get made about the book where you just need to be really careful about how you're presenting that. So I would suggest reading that book again, client plug, reading that book to see how uh, Glendy does that fine balance um, in a way that is entertaining and engaging, but doesn't leave us too many questions about whether the hook of the book is about whether there's magic or not. Because that can't be the hook. We need to be really clear on what the hook is. The hook can't be magic or not magic, right? So that's kind of my main note there. I thought that there were some really strong points with the receptionist at the police department not really trusting her and that kind of dynamic of, you know, not trusting teen girls kind of thing and, and what do women know and what do kids know? Like, I thought there was a lot of interesting power play there that was pretty accurate for a 1989 setting. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I just thought that we needed the, the magic and the query. Cece, what did you think? I agree with everything you said. I have two big picture notes for, for these pages. The first is the pace is dragging. So we spend almost like five pages with Teddy in the waiting room, waiting for the sergeant, then having the dialogue with the sergeant where she tells him that her sister's dead. And we know that. And then we find out things that we already knew because of the narration that preceded the dialogue. I don't understand why we have to see her waiting for two pages. I also think that the dialogue didn't tell me anything new. I I think the one new thing I learned through dialogue is that Charlie, the person who Teddy thinks killed her sister, was wealthy. But that's about it. I already knew everyone in town knew she was a bit witch. I already knew that she had powers. I already knew that her sister was dead. I already knew that Teddy thought Charlie had killed her. So really the dialogue wasn't accomplishing anything. So I would edit this to start with the paragraph about the seashells. And I'd be like, ooh, what do the seashells mean? Like the seashells that are like breadcrumbs. And then go straight into dialogue with Teddy telling Sargent. And then through um, inner life, um, sprinkled out through the dialogue, we could learn all that we need to learn. So both the dialogue and the narration would do the heavy lifting. And then my second big picture note is, and this is mind blowing to me, there is no emotion here. The plot, the setup is made for emotion. Teddy just found out her sister is dead. Like people believe her in the sense that they know she has powers, but they can't do anything about it because she has no social power. Like she's not wealthy. She's not rich. She's an 18 year old, incredibly powerful witch who just found out her sister's dead. I should be feeling grief, despair, rage. I should be seeing her being shocked when she realizes the police won't help her. And yes, in my opinion, this should start out with her being convinced the police will help her because that will lead to a shift at the end of the scene where she goes, oh my God, they're not going to help me. I have to take matters into my own hands. These emotions should be woven into the entire narrative. And again, like I said, the most important part of my note to me is at the end of the chapter, when she realizes the police will do nothing, then we need to see Teddy going after Charlie. I need to see her filled with vengeful rage, filled with the urge to do something, something. It has to be an emotion other than sadness. Sadness and grief are not active emotions. I feel for you as a human, but as a reader, I'm not curious. Readers have the attention span of moths. They're not going to stick around to find out whether your sadness is going to be processed. They're going to be like, I'm going to close this book and I'm going to pick up another book where the character has protagonism. She's a protagonist. She needs protagonism. So right now she's a spectator. So those would be my notes. There's lots to love here. I kept highlighting lines that I really, really liked, but without the emotion woven into this, 
I just, I, I needed more. And that's something that, you know, all writers need to guard against is saying things in dialogue that have already been said in exposition or vice versa, you know, and that again, I think it comes down to not trusting ourselves as writers and not trusting our readers. And that's where our beta readers or our writing groups are so incredibly important because they can find, you know, we, we become too close to our own work and they can be like, you've already said this in this way, take this out, etc. And they allow us to be a bit more brutal with that kind of information. All right, so thanks Colly and Cece for another awesome Books with Hook segment. Let's move on to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, 
and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is a Brooklyn-based journalist and author of The Lost Night, The Herd, and We Were Never Here. Her work has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, Vogue, Cosmopolitan, Women's Health, Martha Stewart Living, Red Book, Elle, and many other outlets. And she's held editorial positions at Glamour, Psychology Today, and Self, among other titles. It's my pleasure to welcome Andrea Bartz. Andrea, welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat to you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. So I read The Herd when it came out and absolutely loved it. So I was super, super excited to see that you had another one coming out in the same genre. I'm actually going to be tag teaming both books because I love both of them so much. And for those of you who are listening, if you haven't read The Herd, you have to go and get it. And then after that, we were never here as well. Could you tell us firstly for The Herd, what your inspiration for that book was? What gave you the idea for that book? Absolutely. So The Herd is both the title of the book and the name of an exclusive fictional, exclusive elite, kind of bougie, all-female co-working space in New York City. The H-E-R, always in purple for The Herd. And I was thinking about, I really like taking interesting social milieu and like throwing a mystery within it. So my debut, The Lost Night, was about sort of the the lost parties of like hipster Brooklyn in 2009. And I wasn't sure what my second book should be. And I just knew I wanted to have this really sort of close-knit, closed-door, interesting, fascinating community with a lot of kind of juicy social dynamics that I could sort of take the reader inside of. Um, And so for me, I was just throwing around different settings and playing with some different ideas. I was thinking about a music festival. Like it's funny thinking about the stuff that didn't pan out. And I, around that same time, had been a guest at New York City's all-female elite co-working space, uh, which is called The Wing. And of course, there's there's many all-female co-working spaces. Uh, And I noticed that whenever I went to the wing as a guest, I felt like even though it was free from the male gaze, even though it was an off-female co-working space, I had to sort of dress up and look nice and present myself well and be charming in order to fit in. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting that we have this setting that sort of aims to be inclusive and yet necessarily is so exclusive um, and just so interesting in these dynamics that I was trying to sniff out. And it was around that time that in my head, I just saw this logo, the herd with the H-E-R in another color. And I thought that was hilarious and a perfect name for a co-working space. And so the whole thing just grew out of me being interested in that setting and what would happen if you threw a mystery in there. Do you think it's your journalism background that helps you kind of sniff out interesting angles on things? Because this is something that we, you know, discuss with our listeners quite a bit is coming up with a hook, coming up with a story that's going to completely differentiate itself in an already kind of cluttered market, et cetera. And that seems to be the hardest thing for our listeners is coming up with that one thing because editors will always say they want something completely different. But then mm-hmm. you find out that they actually want something that's quite the same, but just slightly different. Because if it's too different, they kind of freak out and then they don't want to represent right. it either, right? So right. for you, how did you come at it to position it where it was something that would have mass appeal, but that would have a hook that would differentiate it? That's a great question. And, you know, you started by saying, do you think it's your journalism background? And for me, I'm really not, it's a chicken and egg question because 
I think what ties it all together is that I've always been insanely curious. I find so many things so interesting and I want to go so deep on little things that other people like just move on with. And I'm like, well, wait, I want to understand this. I want to know everything about this. I can't wait to learn more. Uh, And that served me really well as a journalist because I could have a little conversation with someone and they could offhandedly mention something tiny that their company is doing or that they noticed in their community, just some tiny little detail And I could say, whoa, that's a story. I want to learn everything about that. And then it was such a pleasure working on these stories because it was my excuse to be a professional curious person. And I think I have a really similar filter as I go through life uh, trying to come up with book ideas. I think it needs to be some kind of niggling question that really excites you and really intrigues you. And that just feels like it has a lot of promise. And so I am, you know, my friends kind of make fun of me because I'm a pretty cheerful, nice, normal seeming person. And yet the tiniest little detail, I'll go, oh man, if that, and then I'll take it to some mystery extreme, you know, if that were actually, if they, if they found a dead person in that setting and I would spin out this whole, wouldn't that be so interesting and X, Y, Z could happen. And I have a, I have a Google document on my computer that I think is about 20 pages long, single space called book ideas. And it's just where I'm writing down all these teeny little things that sound interesting. I mean, to give you one of a million examples, my mother had sent me an article about sort of the collective trauma of COVID and how it's still sort of un- you know, unacknowledged and it's going to be really hard for the millions. There's so much sort of grieving and moving on to do for the millions of people who lost someone to COVID. And one little phrase in it was something about how, you know, while we were all in quarantine, we couldn't do uh, public grieving rituals. And that was, it was just talking about funerals, but I thought public grieving rituals, that sounds like some weird Shirley Jackson crap. And I (laughs) wrote that down and just like spun out of it, just this tiny little thing that I'm like a magpie, it like caught my attention. And I wrote it down and now it's one item of a hundred on this huge document and who knows what will become my next book. But I just think it's really important for authors to always have that radar on of like, what intrigues me that might intrigue other people too, that I could spin into something bigger and just always be on the lookout for that. Everything is material. A hundred percent. And I love the, you know, that you said you're a magpie. So I always liken myself to, or writers, to intellectual magpies. We see the Mm -hmm. shiny and we collect it and that's what we focus on. And in terms of, you know, when you say your friends laugh at you, I'm I'm the same because I'll see something like Lady Gaga's, you know, French bulldogs were abducted and then somebody has come <laughs> to bring them back. And I'm like, oh no, there's a story there. This That's woman's involved. This woman was totally involved. There's no way she's some random stranger. And I concoct this whole backstory and the whole thing around it as well. And then, yeah, generally take it to a much darker place than it started at. <laughs> uh, but that is part of being a writer, I think. And when you said that you were playing around with a whole bunch of different scenarios for The Herd, you said it was first like a music festival. So is that during your planning and kind of plotting and outlining phase? Or did you actually, did you actually dive in? begin it at a music festival and then go oh shit this is not working because I'm limited in terms of x y and z and so I'm going to change that how does that process work for you that's a great question so I'm a pantser not a plotter as they say so I kind of cast about until I find a hook which for me is generally a setting until I find a setting that feels right 
And then I just have an intuition that this is the thing to follow. And so far, it's been mostly right. I've had one or two false starts. But, um, you know, with the case of The Herd, it was extra tricky. That sophomore novel is so scary because you do have somewhat, you know, you don't have unlimited freedom to do whatever you want. I already had a publisher. I knew we were taking option materials to her. And we actually brought her one, some option materials that she said no to, at which point I could have taken off and tried to sell it somewhere else. But I wanted to keep working with this editor. So for me at that point, I was just, I was keeping lists. So it was all still in my head. I wasn't really writing out. uh, I wasn't really beginning to write these, what turned out to be false starts. But it was just the like daydreaming, staring at the ceiling at night and just seeing what felt like it had the most potential and gave me the most energy. What had the most energy around it, including negative, you know, what brings me the most fear when I think about writing it? What brings me the most sort of excitement and hope and just what what brings me the strongest reaction? And I think that's something I was a magazine editor for years. And as a senior editor, I was, you know, running idea meetings and sort of saying yay or nay to a finding editor's ideas. And when someone would pitch something and the room would just sort of devolve into like everyone having different opinions and we can't decide if this is good, but what if it's actually a bad idea? That to me was the perfect story to assign. That tells me, even though some people vehemently think we should not do that story, there's so much energy around this kernel of an idea that that can feed you, that can, that can you know, be flame on the Tinder. So for me, I was just kicking around these different ideas. And when I hit on an all-female co-working space, it just suddenly felt right. You know, all the other ideas that were sort of closer, maybe I could see some possibilities, those sort of fell, fell by the wayside. And I pitched it to my editor and she loved it. And then I was just off and running and I figured out the story by starting with, you know, page one. I love that you're a pencer. I'm also a pencer. I don't admit this to my students. So I hope they're not listening because I always tell them they have to, <laughs> you have to outline and you have to plot and, and et cetera, et cetera. But honestly, there's a lot to be said for finding your way organically into a story and letting your characters kind of take you places that mm-hmm. I feel if you overly plot up front, you're not open to that process. So I love speaking to to fellow pantsers. And yes, feeling strongly about something is a wonderful sign because the last thing you want is somebody going, meh, like, so exactly. what? Meh. Yeah. You know? And as a writer, you're not just putting a story down, you're telling your readers why the story matters. And if you don't feel strongly about it, if you don't know why it matters, you're certainly not going to get the, that kind of response within your within your reader as well. Okay, so let's go on to the next book, We Were Never Here. Can you tell us how that idea started percolating? Absolutely. So this one I have a very specific moment for. I was beginning to freak out because I didn't know what my next book would be. And I was on vacation with a friend in Chile in the Elsie Valley, which is kind of a stargazing region in the Andes Mountains. And we didn't really realize we were going to be there in the shoulder season, almost the off season. So this town was super dead. And there was one other backpacker there who was an Australian guy, actually. And we, you know, this blonde haired, blue eyed guy who like us was sort of like, oh, I didn't know this town was going to be so dead. And we hit it off the first day. And we ended up being kind of inseparable for the few days that we were all there. And he was so just awesome and kind and respectful. And like, just you could really trust him. He was so great. 
great that we immediately had a running joke about how he was actually going to like, you know, steal our bags and run off with them or like, you know, be <laughs> terrible. Like we just immediately kept having these running jokes about how he was actually a bad guy, which is all built out of sort of this, you know, common idea that like women traveling alone should be really careful and they're asking for it and don't talk to strangers and all this messaging that I as a frequent traveler had really internalized. And on one of the last nights, all the bars were still closed. And so we bought a bunch of Chilean wine and we're sitting in our hotel suite and just hanging out and chatting and keeping up our, our jokes. And kind of out of nowhere, a thought occurred to me and I said, you know, Stephen, you've known us exactly as long as we've known you. And like, you didn't watch me open and pour this wine in the kitchen. Like, how do you know that we're not planning to kill you, leave you here and like take your money and run off? And it was just a long silence. And he was like, I guess I don't. <laughs> and of course, we're still friends. Nothing terrible happened. But it just sort of struck me that we had such a we, we so naturally started to joke about violence against women, and which is essentially male violence against women, that nobody it didn't even occur to anyone that the violence could go the other way. And that idea really excited me. That was sort of the kernel that I felt so much energy around of this idea of sort of casual expected violence against women. And, you know, violence casually heaped on women without allowing them to dish it back. And so I sort of thought, what if instead of a whodunit, my first two books were whodunit, what if instead of a whodunit, I began this book with two women, two, you know, nice law-abiding young Americans who do commit a murder, kill someone and flee the country. And what if the story takes off from there? And it's about friendship and it's about the wall closing in on them and their sort of distrust of each other. And how did this really go down? So I sort of started with the, the theme as well as the setting, because the, the beginning of the book is set in exactly the, the Elke Valley in Chile. And I loved this vacation gone wrong idea. And you took the Australian and you made him a South African. And as a South African, I read that and I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 complex. There's some yeah, there's definitely there's assault, which you know should be expected from reading the book description, not hopefully as too much of a plot point. But yeah, the the there's men who are good guys and there's men who are bad guys, and also the you know protagonists of the book are both good and bad guys, and that was something I enjoyed playing with. Yeah, I'd like to talk about point of view. So when you decide which point of view you're going to write in, so the herd was dual POV mm -hmm. in first person. And mm -hmm. we were never here was one POV in mm -hmm. first person. So do you tend to just gravitate towards first person? And if you do kind of why or how do you decide on the point of view you're going to use for each of your stories? I have found that I have the hardest time writing in anything other than first person POV. It's a weird quirk where every time I try it, it just feels a little bit unnatural. And so I think I really like that closeness and being inside of one person's head that comes with writing, especially a psychological thriller, right, where the, the psyche is sort of the most important part from looking out from someone's eyes. And I really like to get personal with my books. They're about women who are experiencing all of these emotions that we don't like to talk about. I like talking about their shame and their regret and their jealousy and their competition and all this stuff that really makes some people not like my characters, which I understand. But I think it's really important to be in their heads and to really uh, not have any separation between you, the reader, and these characters. 
So the fact that I've never done third person point of view in one of my thrillers is just simply like, I'm, I'm not great at it. I've discovered that and know that about myself. But then it's incredibly frustrating because especially for something like a whodunit or really any intricate thriller, you are limited to telling the reader what this character knows. And by definition, they don't know whodunit or whatever the central question is. That's why you're on this journey discovering it with them. And so it becomes incredibly frustrating when it becomes time for them to learn something really important that they were not present for. And so there's a lot of different, you know, tools in the toolkit. Sort of one of the most obvious is the monologuing bad guy, right? Which we all know from Bond villains. I have to, I do have to use it sometimes in a certain way, but I try to be really sparing with it. But I also generally like playing with, for example, The Herd has an epilogue and a prologue that are not from the narrator's point of view. Um, I like having ephemera. I like having letters or diary entries or newspaper articles or other things that sort of can convey information, blog posts in the case of the herd that are um, conveying important information without the narrator needing to quite state them for you. And so I think, yeah, the reason I gravitate toward first person is because that's my favorite way to get in their head. But man, it does make it tricky. And so you end up having to sort of come up with other ways to work around the, the boundaries you put on yourself. Yeah, I remember, you know, after first reading sort of Harry Potter, for example, and that's third person close. So that's not even first person. It may as well have been in certain aspects. I understand why she wrote it third person close, but I was only on rereading it later as a writer that I started to see how these devices were actually literary devices to give her character access to information he wouldn't have had otherwise. So the invisibility cloak was purely to have Harry witnessing things that could be dramatized for the reader that wouldn't have played out if people had known he was there and that, you know, he needed to have access to that information. And, you know, things like the pensive when he was able to access people's memories, it was so that backstory could be dramatized in an interesting way, as opposed to say Dumbledore sitting down and going, well, Harry, let me tell you about this thing that happened. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing how some of the things that happen in books, some of the favorite things that happen are really just literary devices to come up with interesting ways for the characters to have access to information and therefore the readers to have access to information. In terms of moving from a dual POV, so, you know, the challenge with writing one person who carries a whole novel is that 80,000 words or however many needs to be super compelling in that character's voice for the reader, you know, which means they have to do so much more heavy lifting. But then conversely, when you have dual POV, we only spend 40,000 words with each character, which means you as the writer have to work so much harder to get your readers to like these characters in half the amount of time. Or like you say, your some of your readers don't like your characters, but certainly they're invested in them because they keep turning the pages. So was it more liberating for you to move from a dual POV to a single, or did you find that harder actually to do? So my first, my debut, The Lost Night, was all one narrator with some, well, it was primarily one narrator, and then there were interstitials from different characters. So that sort of cheated all of it. And, you know, part of my logic for switching from that to a dual POV for The Herd was that I wanted to challenge myself and I thought it would be easier in some ways and harder in others. And it certainly was. 
what was cool about it was that it eliminated that problem, right? Of you, own, you, the reader, can only know what one character knows. And so especially the herd is told from the point of view of two sisters who are both very close friends with the CEO of the herd who goes missing early on in the book. And so they're both, they both have sort of personal reasons for wanting to find out what happened. And they sort of launch their own investigations because they're going on at the same time. And so it was really fun to play with the pacing by being able to switch from one character to another and to really play with sort of that puzzle box experience that I think readers enjoy by being able to withhold what one knew from the other. And also there's points where, for example, one of them will, you know, notice something and completely misinterpret it. And you know, because you've read the previous chapter, oh no, that doesn't mean this, that actually means X. And so it sort of created this fun tension of them both looking at overlapping chunks of information, but neither one having the complete puzzle. Because I think for you, the reader, the thrill of reading this thriller, reading a mystery is trying to put the pieces together and complete it in tandem with, or even before they do. But it also created a lot of issues. For example, the timeline. Sometimes I just wanted to have two chapters by Hana in a row. Hana was the one doing interesting things. And yet I had to hit pause after however many, you know, 10 pages and switch over to the other one. And so she had to be doing something equally compelling that moved the story forward to the same degree. Another thing I really enjoyed about it, I mentioned that a theme of this story is sort of female competition, uh, female shame, this sort of, you know, it's a girl boss book, right? It's set in this girl boss world with, you know, commodified feminism. And so it's playing with this idea of how women are, have always been sort of taught that success is a zero sum game and that someone else's gain is your loss. And, you know, we're sort of pit against each other. And so I was able to play with, you know, to give one example, there's these two sisters with very different personalities. And, you know, one of them, Katie, will look at Hana and think, God, I wish I were more like Hana. Like, she's just so together. She makes everything look effortless. She's always in charge. She's never ruffled. Like, man, she has it all together. And then we switch to Hana's mind. And Hana is looking at Katie and going, and just in her mind going, man, like, everybody loves Katie. She's so laid back. She's so charming. I wish I could be like that. And so it just allowed me to have more fun with that theme of you know what we're saying and not saying and the competition and jealousy that like, if we all knew what was going on in people's minds, we would, I think, feel really differently about the women who, quote, have it all. And so I think my answer was a little bit all over the place. But I think after after the herd, I just knew that because We Were Never Here was not going to be a whodunit. It was going to be a thriller that started with a crime and sort of circles, you know, spirals out from there. And it was going to be about this really intense friendship. I think I knew I wanted to tell the entire story from, from the one character who is really trying to get at the heart of what happened and who is my best friend and who am I in relation to this friend and this, this incident, this trauma bond. And, and so in a lot of ways, I feel like it's, um, I said to my agent, do you think it's too simple because it's a linear timeline? It's just one you know, point of view. And she said, no, I wouldn't call it simple. I would call it accessible. It's, it's a different kind of, of book and a different kind of reading experience. And the story is still complex, but it's more about the story than the storytelling in this case. Right. Two things that you said there that I just want to unpack in our last few minutes together. The, the one where you said it's like a girl boss book. And that was the thing about the Netflix girl boss show. I absolutely loved it. I loved this character. And yet it didn't get more than one season or whatever the case was, because viewers didn't like women behaving in these ways. And yet there are a ton of shows that show men behaving in these ways. And that's 
fine. But a woman who's like this, oh, that's not relatable. We don't like her. And we need to like her to want to spend time with her, which I found to be very, very frustrating. So, I mean, you must chat to book clubs and and things like that. You must chat to readers after they've read your book. Do you get that frustrating kind of feedback that they didn't like your characters? Or are you finding that that's changing now, that women are more, you know, open to getting on board with maybe less likable protagonists, but certainly more compelling ones. I definitely hear a lot of that in talking to readers. I'll get, you know, tagged in reviews where they'll talk about that. I have sat down with book clubs where I sat down with a book club where the first question was, why did you decide to make your protagonist so unlovable? And I actually just burst out laughing. Like, unlikable is one thing, but wow, you thought they weren't even worthy of human love. Wow. wow. Uh, that was quite telling. You know, I think it is, I think it is slowly changing. It's just, it especially is funny to me when it's, uh, when The Herd is the book in question, you know, there's an interstitial in the book that um, is a sort of made up um, blog post. And it's called If Steve Were Eve, and it's supposed to be just a, a blog post that appeared on this, The Herd's uh, blog. But it literally goes through point by point things that Steve Jobs did and how they would have turned out if Steve were Eve Jobs. And I used to write this, I used 100% real stories about like real verified accounts of things that Steve Jobs did, just ways he screwed up, ways he was completely horrible to his team and screamed at them. The time that he lost his shit on a barista at a Whole Foods on tape, just things that would be completely unforgivable for a woman to do. And yet, well, he's a genius. He gets to do that. We just, we just think of him in these, you know, hushed heralding terms. And so, yeah, if people are going to dislike these characters for being complex and being imperfect when the book is a about the pressure that women feel that the box that we put women in where we don't allow them to be complex and we you know set them on these impossible tightropes of being you know really approachable but also really strong and fierce and also just all of these you know impossible double standards you know if people aren't going to like it then they're probably not going to like my books which is completely their choice I do find, and I don't want to sound ageist, but I do find that older readers tend to latch more on to the, the likability of the, the main characters as their proxy for whether or not the book was good or whether or not they enjoyed the book. And it, it seems like younger readers can have a little bit more of a nuance. You know, I didn't, I didn't like this decision she made, but I understand why she did it. And I understand what would lead to it. And, and for our listeners, so that's why we always say, keep in mind who your target market is. Because when you're pitching to an agent or when you're pitching to editors, you know, they're going to want to know who you perceive your demographic to be. And that's why knowing if you are writing for older women or younger women is important because it also informs the kind of themes you're going to be able to explore and and the kind of things they're able to take on. Okay, and then the last question based on what you said earlier is you said, you know, you wanted to do Hannah, Katie, Hannah, Katie, and maybe spend more time with one than the other, but then you felt like you had to alternate. So my first novel was Dual POV, and I felt like that sometimes, and then I was just like, oh no, to hell with this. This character is way more interesting now, and I'm going to spend more time with this character, so maybe two chapters in a row, and then one chapter, but then there is the side psychological thing that happens with the reader, that the more time they spend with one character, the more they like that character and the less inclined they are to switch to the other character. So is that why you were sticking very much to the alternating exactly one, 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 or was it something else that made you kind of stick to that, to that format? I 
really thought of my two narrators as having equal roles in the story. And I don't think of one as more of a main character than the other. And so I worked hard as I was writing the first draft. And then really the, the revision stage up first revision is really important for me and for every pantser when you say, okay, I have this, this zero draft, this draft zero, this vomit draft, and I need to turn this into something. I worked really hard to sort out both of their um, character arcs and the progression of what they were doing. And I have timelines that I looked like, you know, a crazy person with post-its on the wall. Um, (laughs) But for me, I really wanted both of their stories to feel equally compelling. And I thought the second I I set out to do it as one, 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 one. And I think, you know, it's, I've seen it done beautifully where there's two people or especially when there's more and you get these different voices in, but I really wanted it to be one, one, one so that you were always excited to switch back to the other. And so for me, it, it just felt like cheating if I was going to do two in a row. I sort of, I started out this way and I'm going to keep it up through the end so that the reader knows what to expect. And it means, yeah, some chapters are a little longer than the others. They cover more, <laughs> cover more, you know, Drive. days on the timeline and we, we move through things more quickly. But yeah, for me, it was important to, because the worst thing is when a book is switching between a few POVs and when you get, you turn the page and you go, oh, not another Maggie chapter, you know, like that is the, I would never want my readers to feel like that. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge in dual POV is that your Mm -hmm. readers have got to, if not like both characters equally, they need to be as invested by both of their perspectives and wanting to, to be alternating there. Something that you said now, and, and this is truly my last question this is something that comes up on the podcast a lot is so we have two agents who read opening pages and query letters to give feedback you know when people go out on submission and our agents will always say it doesn't matter if you have two POV characters that have equal time on the page one is always the main main character and that's who you should begin with and you've just said you didn't consider it to have one main main character so then how did you decide whose perspective you should begin with if that was the case so I did say that but I guess if I if we were like 51 percent 49 percent then I would say that yes the one I started with is the main character and I I just heard the same thing I had internalized that I knew there was going to be one character who you know it was really more about the story because the herd begins with one of the characters who's been an outsider, who's been living in another state, moving back to New York and going to the herd for the first time. And so she walks through those doors and she had seen it at the construction site years before, but Katie, this journalist now walks in and with the journalist's eye, so with that sort of you know, curiosity and, and powers of observation, she walks us, the readers, through this space that her sister has been a member of for months. So she wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as interesting to walk in the doors with her. She wouldn't have that same sense of awe and newness and observation. And so, yes, they both have really equally compelling, hopefully, um, stories and arcs. But I knew that because this was a setting book, because the herd was going to be this this idea that was going to carry the book through, I needed to start by introducing it to the reader. And it was really obvious who would be a better character for introducing, you know, for bringing this world, ushering the, the, the reader, you know, like, like Virgil through these, 
beautiful locked doors into this sort of otherworldly space. And so I do agree that, yes, you should start with the character that like you feel in your heart is the main character, but they should both be super compelling. And it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, we polled people after they read it and people weren't entirely positive. Hopefully, if I did my job right, people aren't entirely positive, which is the quote main character. Yeah. And and this speaks to something else we've said before. Remember that you choose your characters based on the kinds of things they pay attention to and the kind of things that they are going to focus on. So in this instance, having a character who's a journalist be super observant about everything is the perfect character to come through and show this new space because, of course, the other character who's been there every single day this backdrop has now faded completely into the background for them they don't walk in and notice the decor and things like that anymore so you know these are all things that you need to to uh, keep in mind when when you are choosing these perspectives thank you so much andrew it's been so lovely chatting with you thank you so much for having me this was really fun and that's it for today's episode if you have any questions about writing or publishing please email me at the shit about writing at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. 
And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.